Genesis chapter 2, beginning at verse 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother, and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is the word of the Lord. We started a short series last week looking at 
the book of Genesis. I want to start this morning by asking you a question. And it may well be a question you've not considered before. Because maybe you've never had somebody stand here and ask you it, to be fair, but all will become revealed. If you had a time machine, see I told you it was an unusual question, if you had a time machine and you could have been present to witness any event in biblical history, which event would you choose, I wonder? And I'm going to ask you to do something else that maybe you don't get asked very often. Can I ask you to speak to the person next to you? Because just in case I've said anything that's put you to sleep, speaking to the person next to you will wake you back up. So, just for a few seconds, if you could choose any event in biblical history to go in your time machine and witness, what would it be? Take a moment. Okay, so, what kind of things did you want to witness? Shout some out of resurrection. Say again. Birth of Jesus. Anything over this side? I'm going to go for a walk. Anything over here? Yeah. The crop, yeah, okay. Well, it's interesting that very question was asked to a range of well-known Christian leaders. And the answers were quite varied, some of them being the ones you've given this morning. Some said the crucifixion. Others said the resurrection. The flood was a response. The crossing of the Red Sea. Even David slaying Goliath. One of them replied, though, that they would like to have been present when God finished his creation. Can we click on one for me? I'm not. There we go. Which must have been an amazing sight. Just think about the description of creation that we explored last week in Genesis 1. How amazing. How perfect. Think what it would have been like to see those extraordinary events that Moses describes in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. What's being described is the very beginning of life itself. I remember being there at the birth of both my boys and seeing a life come into the world is the most amazing and precious thing. Just think what it would be like to see God breathe life itself into existence. Because that's what we're talking about. In chapter 2 of Genesis, verses 4 to 14 give us more details on the creation of the earth. It's interesting to note that there's no mention of rain in the Bible before we get to the flood and Noah. What verse 6 describes is streams. The authorised version translates it as the word mist, coming up from the earth 
to water the whole surface of the ground. Have you ever seen the supermarket, some supermarkets, when you go to where the fresh herbs are? They've got wee pipes blowing mist over them. So I suspect maybe a wee bit like that. What a creative solution. God is providing. He's providing the means for plant life to grow. Goes on to explain that God made all kinds of trees grow that were both pleasing to the eye and good for food. So God again providing, providing food for his creation. We're also told that the tree of the knowledge of life and death is placed placed at the centre of the garden. A tree which God forbids man to eat from. I'm sure that's something we'll probably be looking at in a bit more detail next week. God put Adam in the garden, verse 15 tells us, to work it and to take care of it. Now before the fall of man, before sin entered the world, there were no weeds, no thorns, etc. So looking after the garden would not have been anything like it is now. It wouldn't have been onerous. It would most likely have been enjoyable. Now I know some of you, I'm sure, enjoy gardening. But at the same time, I'm thinking the weeding part of it is probably not your favourite part. It's certainly not my favourite part. God provided Adam with work to keep him busy. To give him something to do and to trust him as a steward of creation. When the animals were created, God then brings them to Adam to name them. Again, Adam is being given stewardship and being given authority over creation. God sees that it is not good for Adam to be alone and he will make a helper for him. It's interesting, this is the first time in Genesis that God says something is not good. Up to this point, every stage of creation has been deemed to be good. But God says Adam being alone is not good. So yet again, God provides. He provides what is described as a helper for Adam, which leads to Eve being created. Now the word helper is an interesting one looked through our 21st century eyes. I suppose helper in the way we use it today, is a little bit, little bit like an assistant. Now, could you imagine if every time we met new people, I chose to introduce my wife Susan as, here's my assistant. I wonder how well that would go down. And no, before you ask that, I'm not brave enough to try it. But the Hebrew word that's used here 
is the same Hebrew word that's used in Psalm 46 to describe God's help. So God has provided Eve to help Adam. Eve is help from God. It's also really significant the way in which Eve is created. Scripture tells us that God takes a rib from Adam's side to create Eve, his bride. Now, if we fast forward to the crucifixion, we see something else involving a man's side. A Russian, a, a Roman soldier thrusts a spear into Jesus' side, we're told, causing blood and water to come out. At that time, the temple veil is torn in two, and at that moment, the bride of Christ, his church, is born. Think about that for a minute. How amazingly Scripture fits together perfectly. The first Adam and the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. After six days of creation, it's in Genesis chapter 2, God rests. We encounter the very first Sabbath. The word Sabbath itself isn't actually found here. But it's clear that Moses is writing about the Sabbath, the seventh day of the week. The phrase seventh day is actually mentioned three times in verses 2 and 3. Now the word Sabbath actually comes from the Hebrew word Shabbat, which means to cease working and to rest. But it's also closely related to the Hebrew word for the number seven. I want you to give a little bit of time this morning to look more closely at this notion of a Sabbath. It's important for us to understand that this first Sabbath in Genesis chapter 2, it didn't take place, this rest did not take place because God was tired from all he'd been doing, from all the creative work we've seen described. God doesn't get weary. Isaiah 40, 28 tells us, it says this of God, he does not grow tired or weary. God set apart the seventh day because his work of creation was finished and he was satisfied and pleased with his creation. Verse 31 tells us it was very good. But we need to understand something pertaining to God when reading this. When he rested on the seventh day, the Sabbath, it was for our benefit. It was for you and for I. He was trying to create and set up a pattern for our well-being. The reality is, if you don't rest, there are detrimental consequences that could be damaging. It's also interesting because the seventh day, seventh in Hebrew means to be full or complete. Seven is the number of completion. Completion. 
But there are three interesting and distinctive things about this seventh day of the creation week. Firstly, there's no mention here of an evening and a morning, which is part of the pattern that we've seen, which suggests that God's Sabbath rest would have no end. Unfortunately, as we will see when we go on to look at chapter 3, it was man's fall, sin entering the world, that interrupted that Sabbath, that rest, when all was very good. God had to search out Adam and Eve and deal with what they had done with that situation, with sin coming into the world. Secondly, there's no record in Scripture of God blessing any other, any of the other six days, but God did bless the seventh day, the Sabbath. And in blessing the Sabbath, God made the Sabbath a blessing. Thirdly, after blessing the seventh day, Scripture tells us that God made it holy. Or as the authorised version puts it, sanctified it. Which means he set it apart for his own purposes. It was God who created all things. And as such, we must realise it was God who created time itself. He is the God of time and the Lord of eternity. He put the sun in its place. He caused the rotation of the planets and their orbit round the sun. It was God who made the day and the night. It was God who made the seven-day week and set aside a day of rest. You know, every living creature that God has created simply lives one day at a time, except for man. We are the one part of creation that instead is constantly running around in the frantic rat race of life. Planning to rest, but yet somehow never quite getting to that. The American journalist and playwright Fulton Ursler describes the people of the world as being crucified between two thieves the regrets of yesterday and the worries about tomorrow. That's why so often we can't enjoy today for planning and worrying about tomorrow or regretting what happened that we didn't do yesterday. I think this can be especially true in modern life where most of us carry a mobile phone with us everywhere we go. We are contactable and available all the time. Whether it's the phone ringing, emails pinging, messages flying in. Some psychologists say that this current generation has the potential to be confronted by a mental health time bomb as we are the first generation who are never actually able to switch off we're permanently available. 
As many of you know, I am a principal teacher in my day job. And I started teaching more than 30 years ago now, because I'm getting on a bit. It's interesting to see the difference, though, over that period of time. In the past, if children in school, as happens and as happened for, for all time, if they face bullying incidents at school, in the past, when they went home, they'd rest from that. Things are very different now, though. When the majority of children, even in primary school, much of primary, have got their own phones and their own tablets. There's little escape or rest from the worries that come from that. They can follow them into other parts of their lives. Our God is a God who knows our needs. He did not create us for this. He knows that we need rest. And he built that into the very creation of time itself. Please understand I'm not talking about legalism here, where we must be prohibited from doing things on a Sunday in a strict way like the Pharisees did. I'm talking about a God who created us to have rest because he knows we need it. Have you ever heard people in the secular world at large say that being a Christian must be so boring, it's all about rules, it's about things you can't do, it's about things you have to do, but it's not. What it's actually about is a God who loves us so very much, a loving God who knows us because he breathed the very breath of life into us. He knows our needs He provides for us and he wants the best for us. Best for us, his children. By creating us in his image and building rest into creation itself. God knows that we need time to rest with him. I remember reading a story of a famous Chinese scholar who travelled to America to lecture at a university. He was met at a busy railway station by a member of staff from the university who said to him, if we run quickly to the other platform, we can catch the next train and we'll save ourselves three minutes. The Chinese scholar paused and quietly replied, And what significant thing shall we do with the three minutes we save by running all the way to that platform? A rather pertinent question, and one to which I suspect there isn't really an answer. The start of my teaching career, I lived in outer London, a short train ride from Victoria. And standing and watching an underground station at rush hour is quite something to see. And not necessarily in a way that's good for us. God had done wonderful things in the six days of creation. But the climax of the creation week was God's rest after his work. Now it's true that God sanctified work as well as rest. But when you look at the world around us, it seems that rest 
is a great need in people's hearts today. Augustine wrote this, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. I often wonder, if you were to set about building a society designed to take people away from spending time with God, taking people away from resting in him. Could you actually make anything more efficient at doing that than what we see in the world today when you look around us? There's no specific mention of the word Sabbath in the Bible until Exodus chapter 16, when God gives instructions to Israel relating to the gathering of the daily manna. When God first gave Israel the law, at Mount Sinai. The Sabbath was connected with creation. God was the giver of all that they needed and they must acknowledge this by worshipping the creator and not the creation. Remember, they were not to imitate the pagan nations around them. In Exodus, Moses even mentions the weekly rest needed by servants and farm animals which shows the Sabbath as a humanitarian act, not just a religious duty. God commanded his chosen people every seventh year as a sabbatical year, which allowed the land even to have its sabbatical rest, its Sabbath rest, and be renewed. When Moses goes through the law, for the new generation just before they enter the land of Canaan, the promised land. He connected the Sabbath to their deliverance from Egypt. A reminder of what God had done for them in bringing them out of the bondage of Egypt and into their promised rest in Canaan. This concept of a promised rest Hebrews 4 tells us, applies to us today as believers. By the time of Jesus' ministry, the Pharisees had added many of their own traditions to God's word and turned the law in general, and the Sabbath in particular, into what amounted to religious bondage. The few prohibitions found at the time of Moses were expanded into numerous regulations. Jesus rejected these traditions, and if you remember, he was attacked by the religious leaders for healing on the Sabbath. To which he replied in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So Hebrews chapter 4 brings together God's creation rest and Israel's Canaan rest to teach us as believers about our spiritual rest. When you trust in Christ, you enter a new creation and enter into his spiritual rest. Matthew 11 28 to 30 gives us this most amazing promise. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, 
and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Just take a moment to think about that, to think about your life and that promise. I will give you rest. Whatever we might be facing, the season we are going through, he will give us rest. The seventh day of the week, the Jewish Sabbath symbolizes the old creation and the covenant of law. First you work, then you rest. Under the new covenant, our Sabbath rest is not found in a day. It is found in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. By his death and resurrection, we can have life eternal and rest in him. We were created to be in a relationship with God, to spend time with him. Before the fall, we're told God walked in the garden, talking with man. In Christ, that relationship has been restored. And we can once again experience that closeness with God. But God will never force us. He loves us so much that he gives us free will, the right to choose. But he so wants us to choose to spend time with him, spend time resting in him. In the busyness of modern life, I know that can be hard to find time to be with God. But the irony is that it is in the midst of the busyness of modern life that we need that time with God the most. We need to experience the Sabbath rest God offers us through Jesus. Time to give worship and praise to our God. Perhaps in the week ahead, we could all try to set aside just a little extra time to spend with God. Even if that's only a few minutes. Time to go somewhere quiet. Switch off our phones and distractions. Time to lay our burdens down. Give them to the Lord. And just be still in his presence. To speak to God and ask God to speak to us and to help us to listen to him. Time to have our Sabbath rest in God. <laughs>